Welcome, friends, to the Clayhouse Gospel Hour. My name is Pastor Steve, coming to you from the Pacific Northwest. I pray that wherever and whenever you are listening to this, it finds you well. I pray that God will bless you in our time together, and that as a result of it, you will be drawn nearer to Jesus. Hello, everyone. This episode is going to conclude our series uh, on the wisdom literature. Uh, Today, we're going to take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, verses 8 through 14. Uh, It's the very end of the book, and uh, if you've read through Ecclesiastes, which I hope that you have as we've been studying these, looking through uh, Job and Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, and thinking about them as we did in the very first episode, about how Proverbs is the uh, young teacher who's giving us foundational material, um, and how Job is the wise old sage that's uh, pointing out to us that um, God is really in control of everything and we just need to rely on him. And then uh, Ecclesiastes, which we're going to uh, dive into a little bit today, um, is that middle-aged critic who's looking at everything uh, kind of from a, a negative viewpoint. Lots of people think about uh, the book of Ecclesiastes as being kind of a downer. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. So what I want to do um, is I'm going to read through the passage that we're going to study, then we'll pray together, um, and then we'll break it down and take a look at it. Uh, Here's what Scripture says, beginning in verse number 8 of chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Absolute futility, says the teacher, everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray together, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we Thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word. Lord, we just pray that as a result of us doing so, that we would be made more like you and be drawn closer to you. Spirit, we ask you to illuminate the scriptures to us that we might know and understand and be able to apply these truths to our lives so that we might be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. And Lord, we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take a look at it. Um, Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the middle-aged critic here uh, has been using the word vanity or futility or meaninglessness, depending on the version that you're uh, looking at. Those are English words that are translated. Um, And he's describing basically the everyday endeavors of our life, whether that's, um, you know, trying to get our kids through school or 
um, seeking to purchase a house or a vehicle or uh, well, that great job or the next promotion or all of the things that we do, um, he's telling us that all of those endeavors are just meaningless. And it's that phraseology, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, or futility, futility, or meaningless, meaningless. It's what gives the book its dour feel. When you read it, you just think, wow, what a big downer. So I'm just going to live my life and everything I do is of no value whatsoever. And then I'm just going to die. Uh, and then that's going to be it. What a waste of my time. And that's kind of the, the feel that you get from the book. But one of the problems with that is, in my opinion, it's the English language itself. Um, if you've listened to me teach at any time, you've heard me um, mention the fact that the word love in English is so weak um, because we say, I love tacos and I love my wife. And those are two very, very, very different things, but we have the same word. And so consequently here, we have a Hebrew word, hevel, um, which is deeper and richer than vanity or meaninglessness. Um, it's kind of... Um, Translating the word as vanity, futility, or meaninglessness um, makes it too oversimplified. And then we bring, when we study these uh, passages, we bring to that study kind of a, an already a preconceived notion of what futility is, or what meaninglessness is, or what vanity is. Especially the word vanity. When we think of vanity, we think of somebody that's primping and uh, you know making themselves look beautiful for their own benefit. Um, and I guess that's kind of an underlying vibe of what it is that the critic is telling us. But uh, the word hevel has a, a, a really strict translation. I mean, the word hevel literally means uh, vapor or breath. And so the idea here that, um, that they're trying to get across, uh, and he's not using the word hevel in, in that sense, He's using the word hevel uh, in kind of a, a broader sense, but there's there's something to it that uh, we need to kind of try to understand. It's it's really more like um, all of our pursuits are like smoke. So in other words, when you see smoke or when you see vapor, if you will, it looks like it might be solid, like there might be some kind of real substance to it. But when you reach out to grab it, when you close your fist around it, all it does is just dissipate and then disappear. And so the idea here is that the pursuit of it is not meaningless. It's that end result that's meaningless. So another way to think about it is just like, like think about, um, you know, some item or like a, a house or, uh, you know, whatever it is, some physical item that you're going after. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially with a, uh, you know, like purchasing a home. That's a place where you're going to live and raise your family and uh, do all of those things. And, and that's definitely a worthy uh, goal to strive for. When you achieve it, there's satisfaction there. And then you're going to be able to use it for years and years and years to come to raise your families. Uh, you might even sell it and make more money and get another one and do all of those things. But in the end... What happens is, is well, you, you die. 
and then, you know, maybe your children have the house and maybe they just sell it to somebody else and use the money for something different. And then all of that hard work and all of the things that you did to provide that space is just over. And so that's kind of the concept and the idea that the critic is saying. It doesn't mean that the pursuit in and of itself uh, has no value. Let's look at it this way. You ever looked at clouds, like laid in a nice, you know, summer field and looked up and you see the clouds move over and there's a set of clouds there and you look at it and you're like, wow, that looks like a giraffe or boy, can you see the shark in that one? Or perhaps you're uh, doing so laying on the beach and thinking of aquatic animals as you see it. And then when you see it there, it brings a little smile to your face and uh, you enjoy it. And then the wind comes and it moves that cloud away or it shifts and changes the way it is and that image or that vision is, is gone. What I want you to understand though is just because that image or that vision in that cloud doesn't last, the fact that you were there to see it, to recognize it, and to enjoy it for even that space of time has value and it means that it's worthwhile. And so even though the, the critic here is telling us all throughout this book that life and its pursuits are just chasing after a vapor, grabbing after smoke, um, all of it has no meaning because ultimately it's all going to go to somebody else who doesn't care about it as much as you do, didn't put anything into it to get it and will probably just destroy it anyway. Uh, at some point, you will be completely forgotten uh, in all of the world, as we all will. And so then everything that you're doing is of no value. That's our thought process, but that's not what the critic is saying. The critic is saying other things. And so let's, let's dive in and let's look at the passage itself. So in verse number eight, these are the final words um, that the critic gives us in the book. The remainder of this is the, the writer uh, of the book giving us kind of an interpretation, helping us to understand what it was that the teacher was saying or the critic was saying. And when we, here's what he says to us. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. And so we're left here at the end of his statements with this just blanket statement that everything is futile and that uh that's all there is to it. And so you could walk away from that without this next paragraph that's written by the writer to help us understand the wisdom of the teacher. We miss the whole thing. And so these are the final words. Futility, it's absolute futility. Everything is futile. Why are we even trying? That's kind of where we're left. But then verse number nine, the writer steps in for us. And he gives us in the beginning here kind of the credentials of the critic, if you will. Uh, he tells us, in addition uh, to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge, he weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. So here's the qualifications of this, of this critic. is Number one, he's a wise man. And remember, um, there's a great illustration of wisdom. It's um, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. 
And wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. And then, of course, the old joke is, and philosophy is asking the question if it's uh, ketchup is a smoothie. But the idea here is that um, wisdom is beyond knowledge. It's knowledge applied. It's us taking the information that we get in the world around us and understanding it. So the, the writer here is telling us, the critic is a wise man, and everything that he's saying to us has validity, and we need to pay attention to it because it is wisdom. The second thing we know about him is that he's a teacher of knowledge, and we just differentiated between what knowledge is and what wisdom is. And when we make that differentiation between wisdom and knowledge, um, we can know a lot of things. And if you know me personally, you know that my head is filled with trivial knowledge about all kinds of stuff from all kinds of different areas um, of uh, study and interest. Most of that is unusable except for trivia night at the local Buffalo Wild Wings. So, but if I can take that knowledge or you take the knowledge that you know and understand and we can implement that into our lives, change the way we look at the world and think about things, then that's um, wisdom. We're able to take that knowledge that the teacher has given us, not only this teacher, but all of our teachers, take that knowledge and be able to apply it to our lives. Then that's where wisdom comes into place. Finally, about the teacher, he says, he weighed, explored, and arranged Proverbs. I love this one because Thank goodness that there was a wise man that was able to sit down and look at the Proverbs, and the first thing he did was he weighed them. Now, what does that mean, that he weighed the Proverbs? What it means is he looked at every proverb that he could find, probably from the Far East, from the Mideast, from the Near East, uh, from the West, everything that he could get his hands on, from the African Plains and all of those things. And he looked at all of these Proverbs, and he said, this one uh, has value and is truth. Uh, so we'll hang on to that one. This one, this the, whoever wrote this down is dumb, and he threw it away. So he weighed them. It says that he explored them. He looked through. Just like I said, you're talking about, uh, historically speaking, most um, studies, people that study Scripture, they believe that this critic here is Solomon himself. And so if you think about the life of Solomon, uh, he had... Uh, the grandest of kingdoms, and there were, uh, you know, the queen of Ethiopia came up, and uh, all of those wives and concubines that he had um, were not wives and concubines in the, constant, uh, in the context of what we understand it, but they were actually just um, marriages that were put into place uh, so that treaties could be finalized between all of these different nations. And so he had access to all kinds of stuff. The, the tradition tells us that his courtyard was filled with his courtyard was filled with um, peacocks and uh, all kinds of other uh, creatures of um, exotic nature, and so you can also assume that through all of this, he had um, gathered along with that the wisdom literature from those nations as well, and so he weighed those things. Uh, he explored those things, and then he arranged those things. He put those things together for us. Uh, and so you can think about the book of Proverbs that is traditionally written by Solomon. 
And so this is where the teacher is, the, the writer is telling us, this is the same teacher that took these things. He weighed them, he explored them, he arranged them. Verse 10 tells us, uh, we are told, that the critic uh, looked for delightful sayings, but that he also wrote down words of truth accurately. Let's look at verse number 10. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. So these delightful sayings that he's looking for, I mean, I can only imagine um, that when you're gathering a book of Proverbs, you want to gather up the most positive um, uh, information that you can grab a hold of. I mean, I know I would. And so uh, he's looking for those delightful sayings. But because he's wise, he was careful to also make sure that the words of truth were recorded for us accurately. Because if all we do is speak delightful things or all we do is speak positive things, we're missing an entire segment of life itself uh, because uh, not everything is roses, right? Um, we all know that life throws a curveball here and there and some things, bad things happen. And so uh, we have to understand those things. Uh, looking here at verse number 11. He says, the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. So in this verse, the writer is telling us um, how we are to understand all of this uh, and the other wisdom literature writings of the Old Testament as well. He's really telling us this is what we need to know and to understand. So the first thing is, is that... Um, as we're reading through these um, wisdom literature and we're trying to grasp it and understand it, know this, that the sayings of the wise, which are collected in the wisdom literature, are cattle prods. Now, what's a cattle prod? I'm not a cowboy, um, uh, although uh, my aunts and uncles uh, had cattle. I pastored a church in a small town where cattle was prevalent, uh, and many of the, uh, the members of that church had cattle. Uh, but since I never personally worked with it, um, someone had to show me or tell me about cattle prods. A cattle prod is basically, uh, in this time, it would have just been a sharp stick. Uh, now that I believe they have, uh, you know, electrical ones and so forth. But in order to get a cow to go where you want it to go, or a steer or a bull or whatever, to get it to go where you want it to go, sometimes you've got to poke it and uh, to prod it along. And so that's what we see here. And so... The writer here is telling us that these sayings in this wisdom literature, they're like cattle prods uh, to us, which means that when we read them, they should goad us or move us or compel us to go forward. And so that's what we need to do with those cattle prods. Secondly, he says uh, that they are the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. And those sayings are from the masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. Now, here's the really cool part about that. So a firmly embedded nail means that whatever two things have just been put together are definitely not coming apart. So as we study this wisdom literature and these things, these sayings, these understandings uh, become part of who we are, they've prodded us to move in a different direction, to change the way we think, change the way we live, to change the way we look at the world, they then become like firmly embedded nails. 
And these things become part of how our brain functions and operates, how we look at the world and think about it, how we interpret the things that are being said on the news, the things that are being told to us uh, you know, throughout the world. We look at those things and we say, hey, this is what the Word of God said. This is firmly embedded in my psyche. And then finally, he tells us, these sayings are given by one shepherd. Now, the intimation here is that that one shepherd is God himself. And so these words that are being put together, because as we understand the word of God, uh, the Bible itself is the word of God. Those collections of 66 books written by all of those different authors uh, make up the word of God, the, the, the special revelation, the, the direct revelation from God that we have. Everything that we know about him comes out of this book. And so these sayings and these writings of wisdom are specifically, we are to understand that these are given by God himself. So that's a huge thing. If you understand that these, these sayings are given by God itself, you understand that it is designed to move you forward in the direction that God wants you to go, then you can also understand that that's going to firmly embed that in your mind and in your heart. And that's what we're driving for. Let's look at verse number 12. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. And so one of the things that we need to grab out of this one is to understand that there's a lot of different writings out there. There's a lot of different books. He says, to the making of books, there is no end. Uh, and you can go into a bookstore and you can go everywhere. And if you think about all the books that have ever been written in the history of the world and are being written currently uh, and published and produced and all of those things, wow, there's just a lot of people writing a lot of stuff down. And it's important. And all of those things are important. You think about um, the, the books that write about science and how we understand how the world functions and works. That has value and it's important. And when you think about uh, all of these other types of things, even the fiction that, that, uh, uh, that helps us to kind of, you know, understand the world through someone else's viewpoint, all of those things have value. But he said, be careful about those things. Beyond these, speaking about those collections of sayings that have been put together, beyond these, he says, be warned, be warned. Because just because they have value, they don't have the same weight. Remember, he weighs it. Uh, explores it and arranged it, just because these other books outside of Scripture have value, it doesn't mean that they have the same weight. It doesn't mean that we give them the same uh, respect or attention or um, uh, impact on our lives. The, the Scriptures, the wisdom literature and the Bible as a whole, needs to impact your heart and your life and change the way you live your life. You can read a science manual about, uh, you know, how SpaceX launches their Falcon 9 and how it all works and functions and gets into space and then comes back down and lands itself and all the things that it does. And, yeah, that's cool and it's great. And now I know a lot of stuff about that. And, man, I, with that kind of knowledge and the things that I have in the book, I might be able to build one myself if I had the materials. That, however, doesn't have anywhere near the value of a phrase like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should have um, everlasting life. You see what I mean? 
we have to weigh these things. So he's telling the, his son here, uh, be warned. There's no end in the making of many books and much study wearies the body. If continual searching and continual searching, especially when you already have the truth uh, in your hands, uh, can just wear you out. Verse number 13 then. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God, keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. In verse 13, we've got the final statement of the matter. Although life and its pursuits are heaven, they have worth because we are instructed to fear God and keep his commands. Let me go back to the illustration of laying on the beach or in a summer field looking at the clouds. You lay there and you see that image. You're the only one that can see it. Have you ever tried to point that out to somebody else and they're like, no, that's not a shark, that's a castle. So in that moment, you get to experience that and you get to see that and it has value because you are there and because God wants you to enjoy your life. And when God wants you, uh, when, when God says that, uh, that he wants you to enjoy your life, uh, he means those little bitty moments. You'll remember, uh, perhaps, uh, in chapter 2 of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've been reading the book, and I hope that you have. He says this in chapter number 2 and verse number 24. He says, There is nothing better for a person than to eat and to drink and to enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? You see, the point is, is that what gives that moment value when you see that cloud just before the wind takes it away and changes its appearance and you receive a little joy from that, that's from God. So I'm going to give you another small illustration about that and then we'll uh, kind of really finish this up. Uh, one time, uh, I believe it was in 2009, sometime around this time of year, uh, there was a, uh, a hurricane that had parked itself um, kind of up near uh, Georgia, um, in like where Georgia and Florida meet, but it was off the coast a ways, and it was just kind of sitting there, and it created this really great, clean swell. And I had gone out, uh, I, I, I don't know if there was any of us, if there was a bunch of us, if it was just me, but uh, I had taken my nine-footer out, and the you know, the, as your, the sun just come up, so the waves, as they were beginning to peak, you could kind of see through them almost. It was so glassy. They were uh, emerald green with the sun behind them. And I remember catching this one wave, and it was a super long left, and it just seemed to go on for hours. And I just, as I was riding that wave and just standing there on that nine-footer, uh, not doing anything crazy, just riding the line. And I thought to myself, wow, isn't God great that there was a storm that was created off the coast of Africa three weeks ago. It made its way to, uh, you know, near Bermuda or up in that area. And it just parked itself, which created this swell. This swell came on this day that I was able to be out in the water 
I was able to catch this wave and enjoy this ride. Isn't God great? And it's that kind of idea that our pursuits in life, yeah, they're not going to last. We know the revelation tells us that everything is going to be wiped away and everything is going to be made new. But it doesn't disintegrate the value of what we're doing right here and right now. So here in the, in the very last verse, verse number 14, God will bring every act into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. And when we read that verse, we might be like, oh no, uh, I have to really make sure that everything I do is perfect so that uh, you know, when God weighs it out, there'll be more good than evil. Uh, should you live a good moral life? Absolutely. Should you follow the teachings of Scripture? 100%. Should you do what God asks you to do? Yes. What he's talking about here, though, is not necessarily this is bad and this is good and you're going to be judged for these things. What he's talking about is, in the end, everything that we do, accumulative together, all the things that we do, God will be the final judge. Today, I am going to enjoy what God has given me and placed in front of me today. And I'm going to do so in the full knowledge that God did it and he, and he gets the glory. And even if it's a day when things don't go the way I want them to go, I'm still going to give him glory because he is the one shepherd that gives us all of this wisdom. I hope you've enjoyed our time together in our study of the wisdom literature from the Old Testament. Next week we will be, um, there may be a delay uh, in production, but we're going to uh, begin to study one of the books of the Bible, and um, I hope that you would uh, join us again for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together and to um, study your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live every day, in every moment, um, knowing that although all of this won't last, you have given it to us so that we um, could enjoy it, uh, that it could supply our needs, uh, and so that our lives could be richly blessed because of it. Lord, I pray now that you would draw us closer to Jesus, and we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Clayhouse Gospel Hour. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, check us out on Facebook or email to clayhousegospelhour at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.